0: This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Serena Oljati is an expert in human security and armed violence. Her work focuses on measuring and monitoring armed violence in an effort to advance policy and advocacy efforts that promote evidence based responses to the same. Now an independent professional, most recently she led policy development for the UK based nonprofit Action on Armed Violence as their head of advocacy. Serena previously worked for the International Campaign to Ban Landmines representing this organization in Colombia, and for the Cluster Munition Coalition, where she has been actively engaged in the negotiations of the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Serena also helped found the Global Alliance on Armed Violence and has supported the creation of local and regional networks, such as the Nigeria Working Group on Armed Violence and the Latin American network, SHOAC. She holds a Master's in International Relations from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. I spoke with Serena in Switzerland. Hi, Serena. Thanks so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Stephen, for giving me this opportunity today. And where are we calling you today? You're calling me in Poschiavo in Switzerland, a small village in the Alps.
0: In the Alps? Wow, in September. I I hope that you're still enjoying some fall weather. Oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. And very nice weather today. Excellent. Serena, You, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you today was because I know that you've recently made the jump to become an independent consultant. Before we talk about that, tell us what it is that you most recently did. You were with Action on Armed Violence, and tell us about that part of your career first.
1: Yes. So Action on Armed Violence is a UK NGO that works to, to prevent and reduce armed violence. So we had different types of work we were, we were doing both at policy level, which was what I was mainly focusing on, but also with different programs in Liberia, Burundi, Sierra Leone. So what we did was on one side, focusing on some of the weapons and the impact that weapons have on the development of countries and, and and local local areas. And on the other side, we also worked with victims of violence and the area I was particularly engaged with was um, all the question about using evidence and data to inform action. So that's really what I've spent most of my last years doing. In particular, for example, working with the Small Arms Survey and the Oxford Research Group, the Global Alliance on Armed Violence to develop a template that countries and local government can use to report on violence and insecurity. So this is a mix of indicators that can help understanding what the impact of violence is locally, but also a chance for countries to promote what they've been doing in terms of programs or actions or policies and, and, and really start building more understanding about the impact that violence has on the development of countries and what really works in order to address it.
0: What are the two or three most important findings of that work that, that you discovered thus far?
1: Well, I guess the most important one, um, at this stage is that there is a lot that needs to be done. It's very, very difficult to have good data about violence for a number of reasons, really. Um, in one, on one side, as you can understand, it's very sensitive and governments don't really like to share too much information about violence because there is a belief that um, you might point the finger of what they've been, not been doing. But it's also because in some cases, it, it is definitely dangerous to share information about the victims or who has been killed, who has been injured because of the local realities. So one major finding is that there is a lot of need and a lot of scope to improve the capacities. And the understanding of why um, violence is uh data on violence is is useful and how it can be used. And at the same time, also I think that compared to possibly other areas of development in the in the violence agenda the use of data to evaluate um, the impact of what you've been doing is not that great because of the challenges with having relevant data so there is a lot of uh, work that can be done in terms of discussing how you can use data to to show uh, the impact of of what you've been doing
0: is there a You know, you were with uh, Action on Armed Violence for five years or so, and you've been thinking about this topic for quite a while. What's the most surprising finding that you have found specific to either small arms or violence, or or uh, you know the the work that you've been doing? What what can you remember something that you may just wow? I didn't expect that.
1: One of the findings, which is by now it's completely known among some people, but not is the huge amount of violence that happens outside of conflict situations. We have seen, like for example, what I was really surprised is to see the rates of violence in El Salvador, say, or Jamaica, to be as high as the ones in Iraq during during the war. Or for example, that only really only one in ten of the violent deaths happen in conflict situations. So all these phenomenon of of violence which for example latin america is very affected of is quite hidden and it's not very well recognized for example in the donors agendas and in the donors plans which mainly focus on conflict and post-conflict so this was for me one of the main surprises when i started this work by now it's not a surprise but it it still is for a lot of people to Mm -hmm. hear this
0: sure And, and so you're saying you know when when a donor thinks about violence, it's, it's war, essentially. It's exactly. tanks and helicopters and those kinds of things. But when we think about gang violence, when we think about street violence, those kinds of things, it's just a, a much more massive problem.
1: It is massive, and there is a lot less of a coordinated strategy to how to address it. How
0: did you find yourself in this work? Was this, I'm sort of going back to your university years and those kinds of things, was this something you woke up as a teenager and said you know i i know that i need to go out and help people or did, did how did this work find you
1: i strongly believe in doing something which i'm passionate about and this work find me not that much because of its content at the beginning of this but because of the way it was it was being done i i You know, I strongly, I strongly believe that if the right people come together, they can, they can achieve pretty much whatever they want. And the first job I had was with the Cluster Munition Coalition and it was in 2006. So this was the beginning of the coalition and it was a time where they came together because um, they saw the impact of cluster munitions on the population and decided that it was time to do something about. And within two years of this group, working together with states and, and international organizations, there was a ban on glass ammunition, which was like, mm-hmm. for me, amazing. And it really showed me the potential that you have in this area of development, which where there are many, really many topics you can work on, but the potential you can have if you just join efforts. And this is something I do in mostly everything I I, I work on. It's always to build partnerships with um, with the local local people in order to, to address whatever I'm working on at the, at the time.
0: So you've had, you actually quite early on had the experience of seeing real effectiveness in the work that you had. I think many people who work in development and aid, that's one of the larger frustrations of it's such a slow change process or there's so much effort but there's really very little tangible evidence of change.
1: Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I was, I was in that sense very lucky to, to be able to witness this, uh, that at the beginning. I think, um, some of the work I've been doing now has more a tendency of taking really long time to, to, to have an impact because of the approach that I've taken and we've taken with the organization to actually, you know, always sit down with all the partners that are, that have a stake in violence prevention locally and to start off by building an observatory, gather the data, share the data, and then start informing programs. So this obviously takes quite a lot of time, mm-hmm. but at policy level i've seen I've seen actually many areas where there was quite a good success, also with this the arms trade treaty, which has just been negotiating. This has taken a lot longer obviously than than the class admission coalition, but I repeatedly see that the people that come together say with with a very clear and specific goal. They tend to achieve what they what they are looking for. Sometimes what I feel like in the development area is that um the goals are a bit blurry, if you want. But there are so many things that people aim to achieve with one thing that you lose a bit the focus. And I think that is part of why sometimes things don't move forward as as fast.
0: I'm glad to hear you say that. That's one of the things we I, we champion here at Apreneurs, you know, pick one thing make that your thing and, you know, just do that and and make change that way. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things that I'm sure some of our listeners are trying to get a grasp of is they just heard you say that you've really, you know, you've affected policy change. You've had the arms trade treaty. You've had the, the ban on cluster munitions. Paint a picture for me about what did that really mean in your profession? Were you sitting around the security council, you know, negotiating or were you, you know, were you, you know one of hundreds of people working on this uh, I think that there's a mythology about how these things get done and tell us what your specific you know role in that machine was
1: well, it was different in the in different one, but mainly I was one. In 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 all of them, I was one of many people doing doing the work. So the the Cluster Munition Coalition was over three hundred organizations. What I was doing specifically was coordinating the work in Latin America. So like deciding some advocacy strategies that would work regionally, and then start to promote that. And so most of it was really an advocacy work, sit down with the government, sit down with the people in capital, discuss specific political issues that they might have with the content of, of the treaty, this kind of thing. So it was a lot of advocacy, really. But it was always done in collaboration with, with many other peoples. Were you able
0: to see, were you able to come to a moment where, where you got to witness the treaty being signed, or were you you know, half a world away while you know official policymakers were signing a treaty or something like that?
1: No, we were there. We were actually there. I was there. I was able to sit in with the foreign ministry of Switzerland to see her sign the treaty. and It was definitely a very emotional moment when you work on it for like for so long and so intensely. So we were definitely at the UN um during the negotiations, which meant that we could, in certain cases, provide a lot of intelligence and technical support to, to the countries. I think that was something that was particularly striking for me is that you, you become the expert. And often when, um, the government representative negotiating these treaties, in many cases, they don't have an, a lot of experts that can, they can take with them for for the really for the content and the substance. So some of the NGOs became really a a, a content provider to the governments um, in terms of the of the negotiations. So it's, it was a very, very close collaboration with with some of them obviously with others. It was a bit more challenging. Mm.
0: So that that that's really where I wanted to go next. What what sort of challenges are faced when you are an advocate in that way, especially when you're working on something as substantial as an international treaty. You know, were there moments when it looked like it was going to fall apart? You know, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced, not only as a coalition, but just, you know, getting people to the table?
1: Well, there are, there are, since some of these processes, it, it, it depends. Right? For example, the Ar Treaty was done within the UN system, so all the states were there. And so you were faced with very, very different positions on, the, the purpose of weapons or or the impact of weapons. And so it takes a mix of diplomatic skills and political leverage really to achieve what you want to do. So when you have countries that are completely opposed to to your goals, you need to find the right people that can convey the message. So there will be certain states that they will be listening more than others, for example, or in certain cases, you can have entire regions going and talking to one specific countries, And so you need to find the right approach in order to, to manage to get those countries on board. When it happens outside the UN, like the cluster munition or the landmine ban treaty, which was negotiated outside the UN, you have a stronger voice as as a civil society in terms of conveying your messages. You have more room in into the negotiating tables actually to, to be able to promote what you want to say. So you have less um, work to do outside the conference room if you want.
0: Help me understand the difference of negotiating something inside the UN and outside the UN. Obviously both end up being just as valid a process but why would why would you choose one path over the other?
1: The main reason is that sometimes you know if you are within the UN then you work in a consensus and that means that every state, depending on the definition, but mostly every state in the room will need to agree on the text and the content in order for the text to be adopted and become legally legally binding. So For a treaty to be very strong and to have very strong humanitarian clauses in it, you might need to, to negotiate it outside the UN where you can, where you know that some of the countries that will in any case oppose any reference to humanitarian impact or any reference to support to victims, for example, cannot oppose it. So it's a strategic move. If you move it outside the UN, you will probably have a stronger humanitarian treaty in terms of its contents, but you will not have certain countries on board. So, for example, if you, if, if suddenly you find yourself with none of the producers of weapons or none of the users into your treaty, then the, the treaty will not be very strong in any case, even if it has very high humanitarian Closes, so it's a choice you need to strike between who you will, who you are targeting, and the strengths of the of the treaty. Room. You've talked about a couple of
0: fairly significant successes in the the, the coalition or the, the landline coalition and the, um, the arms treaty. Can you tell me about a time when either you personally or your the organization you were working for just completely failed? You know, fell on its face and what you did about that in order to turn things around or or take the next step
1: at a time where we completely failed, i i don't really recall any time where we actually failed completely in what we were we wanted to achieve oh that's that's fantastic
0: <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> i love it that's the best answer right <laughs> well, it, then,
1: you know, i was actually very lucky i, I I don't recall a time where we actually I could say like that really went wrong.
0: Okay, no no worries. <laughs> then, then let me ask a different question. And this will start to take us in the direction of of you as an independent consultant now is what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced working for an organization such as Action on Armed Violence. You, know, you were you were a, an employee for them. What were some of the frustrations while you were working on these important issues?
1: One was more of a personal frustration The the main one, which is also the main reason why I decided then to move into consultancy is that I did not have a lot of control over my time. I was traveling a lot, a lot, a lot. And I really felt like I couldn't really manage my time the most efficiently, mm. both in the terms of the time I was away and the time I, I could then not do things projects that other projects i would like to do but also because you work you know basically nine to five when you're lucky which doesn't happen often but you Mm -hmm. work on a specific timetable every day and so i personally because of my personality and and the way i i work best was struggling to be efficient all the time i prefer to you know set my time and set my goals and then work towards that instead of telling myself i need to be at my desk from 9 to 5 for example mm-hmm. so one frustration i had is this need to be there depend at every day every time um, at the same time instead of being working really with the way I, I I work best, and at the times where I work best.
0: Sure. So less um, results oriented and more basically just time function.
1: Yes, often yes. And how have
0: you, you know, was there a moment when you realized that evidence, you know, was the was, was where you wanted to take your career? Was there an aha moment? You're like, this is this is the mo- this is the most important thing for me.
1: Well, funnily enough, it came with time. I actually would not have taught myself as loving data and all these kind of more nerdy things if you want. <laughs> hey, we love
0: nerds. We love nerds. <laughs> I, exactly. We do.
1: And actually I do, I do. I do. And I, and I realized how much I, I, I love this, but then for me, what was important and where I was feeling that this was really a key aspect to me is that quite a few policy and programs decision being taken. Based on what people believed the problem was what the political agenda dictated that the problem was, and not really based on what the evidence was was really showing so when I started working, for example uh, with my colleagues in Burundi and I sat down with the police there and with the the army and the Ministry of defense and decided, started discussing you know why it was helpful to share data and how they could use it, I really realized the potential that it has and how it can improve what people are doing i was actually surprised about the amount of decisions that are taken on the basis of well different things but not evidence
0: mm so personality driven opinion driven you know yeah, m- politic- mood of the day basically
1: exactly mainly or politically driven so not not many about evidence, so that's what I really saw that if you want to be more effective and also channeling that that all the money that is going towards supporting different programs, you need to improve your and, understanding.
0: And so you've you've taken the decision to to move to independent consultancy. you, you had alluded to a couple of things about the challenges you you were facing, use of your time, those kinds of things. Was there a was there a moment then sort of that aha moment as we like to say, where you said, you know what, this is it. I'm I'm ready to make the jump.
1: It it wasn't no, it wasn't really a specific moment. It's something that I was thinking in my mind and that I, I built it up, if you want. It wasn't it wasn't something suddenly I said, Oh, that's it. It's with the time. I knew that I wanted to be able to better manage my time and also I think Mainly, I believe that after a while, it is good to get out of your bubble. I felt personally that I was losing a bit of my creativity and putting myself on the spot. You know, when you feel a bit too comfortable about what you're doing and you must start replicating. And I always told myself because I saw that happening many times that I would avoid replicating things or just sitting in my position and, and, and just Take everything for, for granted because that's what I have been doing in the last years. So Mm -hmm. it was a choice also in that sense. I think it's, it's important to, for my creativity and, and my passion to, to move on and also, you know, throw myself a bit into the unknown.
0: So. Tell us, then. I think it's fantastic that this was really sort of a prepared process for you. Take me through. What did you do to prepare? How you know? Did you start saving money? Did you announce to people and say, "Hey, I'm I'm going to be going independent in six months or one year"? And you know, did you start to build a network? Do you, you know, do you have a contract that you already landed before you left? What are those tools and pieces that you put together?
1: I definitely cultivated my context. I was. Luckily to, because I work in partnerships and build up partnerships and that's what my expertise is to have a lot of contacts and a lot of people that know how I work and that appreciate that. So I started, you know, looking at opportunities to take some of the projects that I've been working on maybe look at other opportunities just discuss whether people would be interested in in doing some consultancy with me on on some of the stuff that we have done on new projects so it was kind of testing to see the interest of organizations in working with consultants whether it was me or others but just really looking a bit at the market that there was around in 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 the areas that I'm working on and the interest of people in for, in for to work with consultants and what was good or not. I spoke with some consultants that do this type of work and they gave me great recommendations about, you know, what is challenging, how to move forward. So all that I was able to do in preparation really, if you want. Can you,
0: was... can you, can you share some of those challenges? Like some maybe one of the two that, that really stuck out in your mind about, wow, I, I need to look out for that.
1: I guess one that was very interesting, the, the one person told me never under, undersell yourself. And the, the challenge that's what well, that was not a challenge in myself, but I guess the challenge of knowing what you're worthy and how to present what you're worthy. It's quite tricky more than actually other, other things I found. It's really what are you worthy and how do you sell that really. It's I found it very interesting and and, and some areas quite quite challenging. Well,
0: and and then do you have you already put together a strategy for how you're able to communicate
1: that? No, I'm working on that now because what I decided to do when I when I quit AOAB was to take few months for myself to build my next move. So I really consciously wanted to have some time off where I could focus on these things. Because I want to avoid just roll into projects or, or, or specific things just because they are there. I really want to have the time to think through, you know, what am I passionate about? Is this still what I want to work on? And how do I work to do that? So I, I, I took this time off to do that. And I also organized myself so that I don't only Rely and, um, on on the consultancy. So I have some other projects that have nothing to do with development and aid and armed violence prevention that I I want to build up, and I have started building up so that I don't rely exclusively on either of those things, mm-hmm. which allows me a bit more of a room to actually you know really take up things that uh, that I'm passionate about. Can you,
0: uh, are you willing to tell us what some of those other projects are? Are the they creative outlets or com- something completely different? Or?
1: Oh, they're completely, they're completely different. They they go into massages and use of energy and it's more of an individual, individual work that, that I do. So it is it is it has not much to do with the consultancy work I do, apart that it allows me to understand people very well.
0: Awesome. <laughs> So, as you are taking these couple of months to build this foundation for yourself and and really take the time to know what your message is and put it out there, tell us about how you right now are thinking about you're going to structure your work. is it Do you want to have a portfolio of, of small projects that you you know continue to work on do you Do you think you'll want to work for one big client for six months at a time, or what do you think your preference will be?
1: I think my preference will be to start off to have more than one client. In terms of the length, I, I do believe I, that I would like to have projects where I really have the time to work with the client on the recommendations we might come up with and, and the implementation of it. I saw some cases where, you know, consultant comes in, does a review or an evaluation, leaves and writes a report and then mm-hmm. that's it. And nothing really happens afterwards. Whereas I saw um, particularly when we were working in Burundi, if you actually take the time to work and sit down with the people and, and really start implementing your recommendation with them and give them the time to integrate them, then they, they really make a difference. So I don't have a preference really on the time length, but it, I will want something where I have the time to look at this implementation as well.
0: Are there, Tools or techniques or particular skills that either from maybe your, you know, your education or that you picked up when you were at AOAV or they're just things that you know that you've used that help you to be particularly effective either as, you know, an advocate or that you're going to use in your independent consultancy that you think are are just sort of one of your game changers?
1: One thing I definitely always do whether it is going into negotiation or or preparing for for a meeting or whatever is to find some background information or talk to people that might know the person or might know the organization so the build up and the intelligence i can gather before i go into a discussion whatever the discussion is i think In some cases, was was really a game changer, especially when you when you are negotiating and you know the characteristic of the person you you will have in front or some of the interests. It it's really something that makes my life a lot easier at the time of having an impact in in what I'm taking I'm talking about. So I do spend quite a lot of time preparing myself beforehand with different information sure
0: preparation is key thanks Thanks. two more two more questions for you one and both i i ask every guest here in terms of reference the first one is if you and i right now we're we're sitting together in the alps and either you know having a cup of coffee or a glass of wine there's that one story that that we usually tell one another or you know as we're sitting around just sharing stories can can you think of that you know that one story about either a time you were inspired or you saw incredible change i'm thinking like burundi or something like that that you usually tell people about when you were really affected by something that was happening
1: in your work there are numbers i i think one person that inspired me particularly was name is is branislav kapetanović and he was in the serbian army and he was defusing a cluster munition when it exploded, so he lost all his arms and legs, and he has become one of the advocates of the Cluster Munition Coalition. And I think a person that has taught me immensely, many, 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 many things really about life and how to approach life. And one of these persons that reminds me of, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing, and and like him, I have met many really around, around in my trips, and it's always it's always these people that can go through life with a smile and a lot of strength, no matter what they have been been through. So that's definitely him and many others.
0: Mm, I'll. Uh... Make sure that his name appears on your uh, uh, on on this post here, so that people can look him up and uh, share in that inspiration. Thanks for sharing that. The last question I always ask every guest here in terms of reference is there are a lot of people listening right now who are either thinking about transitioning their career into development or humanitarian aid or have just completed a master's degree, or you know maybe they're they're already professionals, but they want to get better. What's your critical piece of advice that you give people about how to be successful in this profession?
1: The main one is be really clear about what you want. So take the time to think and imagine what your work would look like, what you want to work, how you want to work. And the second one is never be shy to ask for advice and reach out to people. I, I do think that a lot of opportunities come from talking to people and connecting to people a lot more than spending times on websites or just sending out CVs without really thinking about what you want to achieve. So my two advice would be be really clear about what you want and spend time reaching out to the right people or just presenting yourself and talking to people.
0: Serena, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fantastic interview.
1: Thank you very much to you.
0: You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.